0: Good morning. What a joy it is to be with you worshiping the Lord together. Uh, If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 10, picking up from where we left off last week. Looking in verses 5-15 through today. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find this text on page 815. And... While you're looking that up, I want to ask a few questions to you this morning. Okay? In Genesis, God gives commands and details on how to build an ark. So I want to ask you this. Have you built your ark yet? No? I did mine last week. Okay? In the Exodus story, God commands His people to paint the blood of a ram across the doorposts. If I came to your house after this today, would I see blood on your doorposts? No, probably not. Mine does have it. I'm following faithfully. In Ezekiel 43, verse 22, God gives a command that on the second day, there should be a sacrifice of a male goat without blemish. Okay, I haven't done that in a while. But if you haven't built your ark yet, if you haven't painted the blood of a ram on your doorposts, if you haven't sacrificed a goat, then I want to ask you can you call yourself a true Christian? It's in the Bible. Can you call yourself a true Christian? Surely you understand that we don't need to build an ark or any of those things. But I use outlandish examples here to get to a larger issue. It's a mistake that many of us at times have made when we read Scripture. There are times where we will read the text and take a passage that was meant to be descriptive for a certain people at a certain time. And we will sometimes unintentionally make it prescriptive For ourselves, meaning that we will take that as a commandment for how we should live as Christians. And while I think we accidentally make certain texts prescriptive, I think our intention is to try to be obedient, but not understanding the differences will often misguide us in our pursuit to serve faithfully. The text today has several of these moments. And what will help us here is understanding when this is taking place in redemptive history, okay? So I want you to think with me. I don't know when the last time it was that you went to a mall, but you go to a mall and you first walk in, and the first thing they have in front of you is that big old column with the map of the mall on it, right? Okay, you walk in, you look at the map, and the map is puzzling to you. You just want to get to the Build-A-Bear workshop, okay? That's all you're trying to do. You're trying to get to Build-A-Bear. But you don't know where to go, and this map is not helping you. But once you find that one thing on the map that says you are here, suddenly that map makes tons of sense, right? I know that JCPenney is this way. I know that Macy's is that way. And Build-A-Bear workshop is down the escalator this way. The map makes no sense unless you find the you are here location. And you and I, we are on this side of the cross. We are on this side of the resurrection and on this side of the Pentecost. But the text that we're talking about today, this text is before all of that. If you've been following along with us as we've worked our way through Matthew, what you'll see happening today is a transition taking place. Through chapter 10, Jesus' ministry has been a declaration of who he is, what kind of power he has, the authority that's been given to him, and the purpose of his mission. Between the end of chapter 9 and starting here in chapter 10, as Henry mentioned last week, we now have this shift, okay? Now we begin to see a preparation phase begin to happen in which Jesus is sharing his authority with his disciples. Let's go to the word. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, as you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. I want to break this down in a few ways for you this morning. First, I want to talk about where these disciples were instructed to go. I then want to talk about what they were instructed to do, how they should prepare themselves, how they should enter and depart, and finally, what this means for us today. But with this text, and like with many others in Scripture, there are some things that we should be cautious about when we work to interpret what is happening often, again, we will take what is happening in a particular text and we'll make it a law or practice when it isn't meant for such. As we go through this, we'll work to uncover some of those things, and Lord willing, we will see how they should then impact us. Okay? Let's get started. Starting in verses 5 and 6, Jesus begins giving the 12 disciples that were named in the preceding verses, he starts giving them some confinements for their mission. Instead of saying, go and preach to all peoples, he limits their specific location of ministry to Israel, to the Jews. Why? And I want to hit pause for just a moment here, okay? Because when we read the scriptures, we should always be asking questions. We should always be asking questions in order to better understand the context and the meaning. For example, why did Jesus restrict them? What does Jesus mean by the lost sheep of the house of Israel? And how does this fit into the greater context of the gospel of Matthew and what is being shared with us? Brothers and sisters, we need to get curious about the word. Because when we get curious about the word and we get curious about the text, it's when we begin to understand it better and it's sweeter to our souls. Okay? That was my side note. Diving back in. So why is there this restriction to not speak to Gentiles or Samaritans? In Matthew's gospel, it seems that Gentiles and Samaritans alike have both welcomed and been positively affected by Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus is born, he's welcomed by magi who were not even from Israel. Chapter 4 says that his fame spread throughout all of Syria and many were being healed. Chapter 8 shows a Roman soldier appealing to Jesus for the healing of his servant. So if they've all been positively influenced and impacted in some form or fashion by Jesus, why limit the disciples to the ministry of only the Jews? Even later in this chapter, in verse 18, he explicitly says that he's sending them to the Gentiles at some point. So why not now? Does this not stand in stark contrast to the Great Commission of chapter 28? It's important, again, to remember that these events are happening prior to the completion of Jesus' mission here on earth. This command to go to the lost sheep of Israel, it was a command to seek after all the Jewish peoples. Jesus, after all, was a Jew by lineage He's the great son of David. He's the fulfillment of prophecy to be his people's king and savior. For the Jews, he was their long anticipated redeemer they had been waiting for for so long. Isaiah 49. Verses 1-6 through gives us a great picture of this. In that passage, Israel is called upon as God's servant. But it's the true Israel in Isaiah 49, which we are now seeing fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He represents true Israel and begins his ministry by looking to restore them. By looking to restore them to what they were always meant to be. And it would be through the nation of Israel that Christ would come. It is at this point in the history of salvation, Jesus' mission was to the house of Israel. The same people group that had been preserved, protected, and provided for throughout all of the Old Testament, Jesus was now fulfilling that mission first. And Paul understood this. He understood it well. Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek." After this initial restriction of where they should go, Jesus begins to tell them in verses 7 and 8 what they should do. Though it's not said here in chapter 10... It's presupposed like with John the Baptist in chapter 3 verse 2 and then with Jesus in chapter 4 verse 17 both being in the book of Matthew that the word repent is actually a part of this command that is given. So it's safe to understand this as repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a very important piece. Jesus' disciples had previously only been given authority to cast out demons and heal the sick in verse 1. But now Jesus adds on to that and instructs them to preach. The disciples' words that were spoken coupled with the miraculous works they performed would validate each other in the proclamation of the kingdom. I'll expound on that more in a little bit. But these these miracles here They weren't just sheer kindness, okay? They operated in tandem with the words to proclaim the arrival of God's kingdom that was there before them. This is an important piece of the text because there's that shift again. Remember, this shift is taking place up until this point. Jesus has been the one doing the work. He's been the one preaching the message of the kingdom of heaven. It was him doing the miraculous works that validated himself as the prophesied king of the Old Testament. And it's through all these things that Jesus did that the disciples had only followed him and witnessed him in action up until now. But now that shift happens. It's their turn. We need to view this as Jesus continuing His mission through the sending out of His disciples. They were now His emissaries, and they were on His mission. In the same way that He has preached the kingdom, and He's proved the kingdom's presence, they were now given that authority and the privilege to demonstrate the same acts that Jesus Had been displaying. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says this It, meaning the gospel, the gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What is the author of Hebrews saying here? Well, they're explaining that the miracles and dramatic signs were a part of the proclamation of Jesus that resulted from the apostles' preaching of the gospel. Let me say it again. The miracles and dramatic signs were a part of the proclamation of Jesus that resulted from the apostles' preaching of the gospel. And that's what's happening here with the disciples. The disciples are about to get their first taste of this, this power and this authority. It's an extension of Christ, and these giftings are coupled with the power of the preached word to call the lost sheep home. As we move forward through verse 8 to 10, we see that as the disciples prepared to go, Jesus commanded them, to do these works without pay and to take very little with them on their journey. So another question we might ask, does this mean that as Christians we're to live with nothing? Can I not have more than one shirt? This particular part of the text is sometimes used to establish an idea that Christians should not attain wealth or have possessions or experience any good gifts here on earth. And that, I believe, is a misuse of the text that impresses guilt upon others for having any any of these things. But again, we need to look at the context of this text. These disciples were in training, this is their first mission. And I think there's a couple things Jesus was trying to train them in as they prepared to go. By reminding the disciples that they received without paying, and that they should give without pay, what is it that they received freely that they must now give? Well, this mission, being an extension of Christ's mission to spread the gospel, they had freely been given that blessing of good news, and Christ is telling them now to reciprocate that. It seems that later on down the road, many would attempt to use the sharing of the gospel as a means of peddling money from others. That's why Paul talks, in, talks to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9.18 and 2 Corinthians 11.7. He talks to them about preaching the gospel to them freely, without charge. The great authority and power to preach and heal and raise the dead and cast out demons could very well be a temptation to them to make some money. But those gifts were bestowed on them freely, and they were to use them freely. Next, by restraining the disciples in what to take, they weren't to exhibit or desire luxury as they learned to rely on God's providential hospitality through the works of others in this short mission. In doing so, it would have given them better opportunity to reach the lost and the lowly of the Jewish people's. And it would train them to live with less, not procuring additional supplies and relying on the Lord's provisions through special encounters along the way. These were mission-based commands with mission-based goals. Not because Jesus thought that it was a bad idea to own more than one cloak or to have some money. In these final instructions of verses 11 and fifteen through 15, Jesus says some key things. He says, Stay with someone who is worthy when you greet and enter. If the house is worthy, may your peace be with it. If it is not, may your peace return to you. If anyone doesn't receive you, shake the dust from your feet and leave for it will be more bearable on judgment day in Sodom and Gomorrah than for the town that doesn't receive you. In a similar account in Luke chapter 10, Luke describes this person as a son of peace. And in church planting and in missions culture, sometimes this phrase, son of peace, is used as a way to gain access to a town or village. Missionaries are often taught that the first thing they should do upon landing in a mission field is to seek out this person of peace because they are spiritual people that God has prepared. But when we look at the context of this passage and the point of redemptive history at which this story is taking place, I don't think that that is what's happening here. We have to be careful about taking matters again that are descriptive and making them prescriptive for what we do. This word worthy here is referencing a faithful Jew who is open to the message of Christ and the ministry that is taking place. These faithful, Jews that, these faithful Jews that they were going after, the disciples, they were part of the remnant of Israel with which God had made covenant with. And we can look at the examples of both Anna and Simeon in Luke chapter 2 to understand this a little bit more. At that time, Jesus was still a child, and he was being presented at the temple. Luke describes Simeon as a man who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And of Anna, it says that she would linger in prayer and worship and prophesy about God. In the expectation of the redemption of Jerusalem, the remnant's desired redemption had come at last. That's the message. There's an additional and, and a little more practical piece that we can also consider here. You see, at, at each town that they visited, the disciples weren't to look for the most comfortable inn to lay their heads. Instead, Christ wanted them to stay with those that recognized the gravity of the message of Jesus' long-anticipated arrival. This would result in hospitality being given, late-night gospel discussion, and strong discipleship relationships being formed along with Israel's faithful ones. When the disciples walked in, they were to greet them. And again, Luke 10 sheds more light on this greeting because this greeting could really be understood kind of like this. Peace has finally arrived. Repent now for the kingdom of heaven is here. This is huge. This is huge. By telling the disciples to go and greet them in this way, it's a way of calling out and telling the truly faithful ones of Israel that the one whom they have waited on in the promises of the Old Testament, was finally present and in the flesh. The true Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9 was here. Isaiah 54, it says that for the faithful ones, his covenant of peace will never be removed, and that this is their heritage. Jesus, their heritage, the peace that they had anticipated and waited on was here. That was the message. He is here. Yet Jesus fully anticipates for this message to be accepted by some and rejected by others. Should this message of peace not be received if the household or town was not found worthy, then there were severe ramifications. And in the rejecting of him And his kingdom, peace would not be with them. When it says, when Jesus says to the disciples to shake off the dust and leave, this isn't a simple wiping their hands of the situation. This isn't just a, oh well, on to the next. There's a huge symbolic thing happening here, okay? See, when when devout Jews would travel through Gentile lands, upon leaving that land, they would customarily remove their cloaks and remove their sandals and shake off that dust. It symbolized a way of rejecting the Gentiles and distancing themselves, disassociating themselves from the pagans. It was a form of judgment. And here in our text, If a Jew decided to reject the disciples and the message that they brought, who were the emissaries on mission from Christ, the one whom they're supposed to be anticipating to bring peace, if they rejected that message that was being brought, it's a complete rejection of Christ. And for the disciples to do this to the Jews at their homes... And in their towns, it's a symbolic way of saying that these ambassadors of Christ now viewed them as pagan and are liable to judgment. Jesus had come for his people, but those particular ones who were choosing not to accept the message of the Savior, this was a horrifying sin with unimaginable ramifications. And that's why there's this bold statement here about Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know to be two major cities in the Old Testament that God destroyed because of their wickedness. We also see this later in chapter 11 as well. That for those who hear the message and do not repent, they will experience judgment worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's worse? Why? Why is it worse? because it's at this moment that the revelation of Christ had become the clearest it had ever been, and they would still reject him. So, how should a very informative text like this work out in our lives as Christians? If Jesus is describing a very specific set of commands for his disciples, which happened before the cross and before the resurrection, then how should we understand this text as Christ followers today? One of the first things that this text does for the Christian is that it's a reminder of the empowerment of Christ through the Holy Spirit that we can now go to all peoples. Remember the words from the sermon last week. Jesus called these disciples and he gave them authority, right? We know that. He gave them authority. And for the disciples, this was their first great mission where they were to put the things that they had been taught and the words that they had been told to speak, finally, to the test. This was the time to put their faith into practice and doing so without the normal supplies that they thought they would need. It wasn't just picking up their stuff and following Jesus like they had been. No, this meant that they had to put into practice all the things that they had been watching and observing and they had to put into practice the authority that had been extended to them. And for you and for I who have been called and saved by Christ also, we too are empowered through the Spirit to do the same. In Acts chapter 1, before his ascension to heaven, Jesus said, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This mission that the disciples were on is similar to our mission now in seeking the lost. Though we are not limited to just Israel because we have been called to all the nations. Christ is fulfilling his mission in reaching his lost sheep through you and through I. And that, that should make you smile. That should make you smile We are his ambassadors, his missionaries, his heralds. He uses us. And a small side note, this should also remind us that we can't do anything apart from him. Apart from his granting of authority and power, the mission would not succeed. What about these demonstrations, though, of the supernatural? Right how do we, how do we reconcile how do we deal with that Well at certain instances the gospel can be spread wide through the lord's work and display of miracles which we observe in numerous instances in the new testament particularly when the message is introduced to a new community However the lord also demonstrates his authority of his teachings through the ongoing life and ministry of the local church this is evident in various aspects that sometimes I don't think we catch these miracles such as new birth and reconciliation and spiritual gifts and remarkable acts of generosity all these things baffle the world they baffle the world and it leaves no other explanation except that these individuals are empowered by Jesus if you are in Christ if you have witnessed his power in your life then it is in him that you should live and move and you have authority as witness as a witness to others about his mission to reconcile May this stir in you an unshakable desire to lean into his word and to preach the gospel. This leads us to a second point that I think we can take from the text. It's that we should be faithful in sharing the gospel no matter the response. This particular mission was not a mission of trial and error. Okay? Jesus wasn't asking them to just go and check in on the Jews, try these things out, report back if it works or not. It wasn't trial and error, okay? Jesus clearly knew that there was going to be opposition. It didn't surprise him. He knew that. This instruction from Christ gave parameters to aid the disciples in putting their faith into practice. These parameters helped as they were preaching the gospel to the Jews by giving clear instructions on what they were to do, whether the message was received well or not. For you and I on the other side of the resurrection, now we are instructed to go to all the nations. There is no restriction on who we should preach the word to. Matthew 28, we read it earlier. Jesus came and said to them, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our job is to be obedient to this command. Our job is to be obedient to this command. Philippians 2 Uh, verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are to go regardless of what others think of us. For it is God who works in us. But it's so much more too. There's so much more here. As as Christ followers, we are all extensions of him. We are walking extensions of him. We do not preach the gospel for our own sake, but for others' The love of Christ and the work that he's done in our lives should thrust us to prayer for the raising up of laborers to reach the lost, but also prepare and embolden us to reach the nations. It is not our job to desire to excuse me, it is not our job to determine who will be saved or not. We do not and we cannot know that. But it is our job to spread the good news so that the lost sheep would come to him. I have to be careful here because I don't want to get too far into the next few verses regarding persecution. But, church, there are brothers and there are sisters that are suffering under great persecution and great trials all across this world. Recently, I've been reading um, Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of Christ. And if you haven't read that yet, I would I give it two thumbs up. I highly recommend it. He has a section where he talks about how you and I are able to gather freely for worship, to hear the word and to sing praises. How we're able to celebrate our Christian holidays. We have hymn books with a plethora of beautifully written songs. We listen to edifying podcasts. We read the latest Christian news on blogs. We we have it delivered to us first thing in the morning in our emails. We can choose from a variety of Bible options, right? KJV, NKJV, NIV, CSV, ESV, HCSB, ETC. We can choose what style we want our Bible in. Thin line Study, journal, kids' edition, the list goes on. We have all these things without persecution, but there are others in the world who struggle to even have one Bible. They have to rip it up into sections so that different parts of their underground churches can read at least a portion of God's Word. read the portion, bring it back the next time they're able to get together and swap. Why do I say these things? I say this in hopes that the word of God would remind us to be faithful in the preaching of his word to the nations, to our neighbors, to our grocery clerks, to our waiters, our waitresses, our family, especially when we have so many tools at our disposal. As compared to others around the globe. Brothers and sisters, we are just called to be faithful witnesses. Like the remnant of Israel and like the disciples in reaching out to them, it is not our job to pronounce eternal judgment on someone who doesn't accept the word of God. Many of us pray morning, noon, and night for our lost loved ones who still have yet to see repentance. We cry and we groan in anguish for the lord to save them and we wonder what more can we do we cannot change them we cannot bring judgment upon them so we must trust, trust excuse me so we must trust in the sovereignty of god and his eternal plan we must continue being faithful We must continue being faithful witnesses who never cease in preaching the gospel no matter the response. No matter the response. May this encourage you to continue being a faithful witness. The final point that I have for you today is that God will fulfill His promises Seems simple, right? God will fulfill his promises. If you're, not, if you're not a believer and you're here today, then I'd encourage you to pay special attention here. God will fulfill his promises. When we teach, uh, when we teach our kids in our dig in Sunday school classes, right? When we teach them in those classrooms, this is such a basic thing that we teach them, right? God always keeps his word. God will always fulfill his promises. He has all authority. He has all power. He is the creator of all things. These basic things, right? But even these most basic truths should really grip us as well and should remind us of his goodness. The Old Testament is filled with messages regarding the coming Messiah. And it began with the Jews as his chosen people. In Genesis, we see God choose Abraham and his his descendants to be his own people. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2 says that the Lord has chosen you, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There were promises of a Savior to come and Jesus fulfilled that here. He came as a Savior for the Jews first, so that through the roots of his covenant with them, all may be saved. He came to the Jews first, so that through the roots of his covenant with them, all may be saved. We see this played out here in the sending of the disciples to the Jews first. What am I saying? I'm saying that for you and I today, this gospel is for all peoples. Recall the you are here location on the map. Y'all remember that, right? We are on this side of the cross in time. And there is no one, not Jew or Gentile, that has priority over the other on this side of the cross. Christ has come. He has died. He has risen again in the defeat of sin for those who have faith in him. Brothers and sisters, in our text today, Christ was sitting front and center. Front and center with the Jews. It was the clearest revelation he could give to them to be physically among them. Today, we have been blessed to have a more clearer revelation. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we have his word where we can see the larger picture of God's redemptive plan. And recall also what I said earlier, God is revealing himself more to us and displaying his authority in and through our church body. He is a God of compassion, And he is the long-anticipated Prince of Peace. May we seek him to experience this peace, to be emboldened by his power and authority to go to the nations and preach, and preach this message of great hope and of great peace.